Everything changed. On a sunny spring morning in 1985 in my home city of Bucharest, Romania, I was arrested by the secret police and thrown into a dark, cold cell. Paint was chipping off the walls and the smell of body odor and mold permeated the air. My crime? Giving Bibles and Christian literature to others in my nation of communist Romania. A 29-year-old alone in my cell, I prayed, Lord, why am I here? Why did you allow me to be caught when I had been so careful when I was doing your work? Suddenly, a middle-aged guard with a machine gun burst into my cell, cursing against God and me. I sat quietly in my corner, praying for protection and pleading for wisdom in dealing with this angry man. The guard paced and stared at me. Eventually he demanded, why are you here? You don't look like the dangerous criminal I was assigned to guard. I told him I was arrested for giving Bibles to others. He was so surprised, he set down his machine gun and began to pepper me with questions about my faith. In that moment, I realized God wanted me to share Christ with him. Not a course on comparative religions or some complex apologetics. I swallowed hard and simply told him the basic gospel, that Jesus came to bear our punishment in order to pardon us and give us eternal life. His eyes opened wide as he started to understand the love of God shown in Christ's sacrifice for us. He started to cry. We knelt together in that smelly cell, thanking God for his love and bringing us together and asking Christ to come into his heart and make him. Shortly after, I was taken by another guard to a different room for questioning. But my heart was full of joy because my Heavenly Father had answered my question, why am I here today? It was to share Christ with this man so he could step from darkness into the wonderful light of Christ. The following months were painful, but that moment with the guard gave me strength to face the difficulties and to trust God will do his work in me and through me. Often, when I face new trials, I remember this story and take heart. Well, good morning. So that is LSA. LSA is one of the 90 missionaries we have the privilege of encouraging and supporting and partnering with around the world. I've had the privilege of being with him in Bucharest, Romania, preaching with him, uh, teaching, uh, doing pastor conferences. And I have seen up close and personal the strength of this guy's faith. Now, a little later in my message this morning, I'm I want to talk to you about overcoming your adversity like he overcame his. And we're going to do that by looking together at God's word today. So would you bow with me and let's pray? Father, we are amazed at the privilege you have given us to come to you in prayer. That is only possible because you have come to us in Jesus Christ. And so today we worship you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords.
who are, we worship you because of your compassion, your grace, and your mercy, that Jesus willingly became a man. The Father sent the Son by the power of the Spirit, and the Son lived a perfect life, and your gift to us was Jesus' death on the cross. That in that we might find forgiveness, eternal life, hope and peace and joy. And Father, this morning we want to confess to you that we look for those things in all sorts of other places. And we're not even aware often of the feebleness of our faith and the fickleness of our hearts. And so we need a word from you. And we thank you for what you have done in giving us Jesus and giving us the Spirit and giving us your word and giving us creation. The world is full of your unfailing love. And the metaphors of your love are all around us. And so today we worship you as your people. We ask that you would speak to us uh, in power by your Spirit. And we come to people who desperately need you. We desperately need a word. We thank you for the power of the worship we have experienced. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to begin this morning with a, a story or part of a story um, uh, about my life, my walk with Jesus Christ. Uh, when God's word came to me, it turned my world upside down. Uh, let me illustrate it this way. About a year and a half, I was on Moody Radio, and I was talking about the crisis I faced in my life in and around the death of my first wife, Carol. And one of the hosts, and I've been on the, the, the morning radio with them uh, a, a number of times, one of the hosts sort of surprised me and out of the blue asked me this question, Rob, did you come to Christ because of problems in your life? And I said, no. A lot of people do. Often they're uh, facing a crisis and, and God intervenes and speaks to them or people sense a, a vacuum but I loved my life before I came to Christ. I was a carefree college student. Really didn't have a, a, a worry in the world. So I didn't come to Christ because of need. I came to Christ because of truth. The truth of Jesus' words. Specifically, I couldn't escape the truth that Jesus claimed to be God in the Bible. I was reading the Gospel of Mark as a non-Christian. And I couldn't escape uh, the reality that Jesus said, either you believe in me or you don't. And if you believe in me, you're going to heaven. And if you don't, you're going to hell. And for me, those were words of love, not words of hate, because Jesus then went to the cross to die in my place for my sins. So God opened my eyes, wonderfully opened my eyes. He drew me to himself. And I received Christ. But not because I was unhappy, but because Jesus Christ claimed to be the truth. He claimed to be the way, the author and the source of eternal life. 
And I say all this because today we are looking at equally important words of Jesus. We are looking at truth by Jesus, statements of truth by Jesus on this important subject of prayer. You see, an invincible church, and that's our series, is a praying church. And prayer is the only way you can possibly uh, survive. It's one of the main ways, I should say, uh, you survive when you're in a prison cell in a communist country like LSA experienced. So today, to get at the words of Jesus, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles. We'll have the words on the screen to Luke chapter 11, the Gospel of Luke. Now, in the first four verses of Luke chapter 11, we have Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is about how we should pray and what we should pray. But in the verses that follow, beginning in verse 5, and that's what I want to focus on this morning, Jesus tells us two stories. He's always telling stories of why we should pray. Now hear me, why we should pray individually, why we should pray in our life groups, and why we should pray as a church. And so I want you to stand with me as I begin reading in verse 5 of Luke chapter 11. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed and I can't get up and give you anything. You know, you read this and you think Jesus has got a wonderful sense of humor. And Jesus continues, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you uh, the bread because of friendship, yet because of your, here it is, shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and his door will be op- the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now what I want to do is I want to look at three reasons in this passage why we should pray. Pray individually, pray in our small groups, pray as a church. And here's the first. You are most human when you pray. Now, this is the subject Jesus addresses beginning in verse 5 through the first half of verse 8. Prayer is a clue to your heart. It's a clue to how God made you. It's a clue to the nature of your soul. 
Uh, for example, um, for years, people have said, not so much anymore, but people have said, and many of you have heard this expression, there are no non-believers in foxholes. They're just not there. And what they're talking about is when you're a soldier in battle and the bullets are flying, or when you're facing the death of a loved one, or where you're in and you don't have the ability to figure out what's on the horizon, or when, frankly, you're just scared to death, you'll pray. That's the point of the expression. And then people will often, uh, uh, if they don't express it, they, they intend this, uh, and they, you pray not necessarily because you believe in God, but because you're desperate. But there's something missing in this notion so C.S. Lewis, the, the British author and uh, wonderful thinker, once was talking about old houses in Britain that had basements. I'm mean, talking about 100-year-old houses. And he said, if you want to find out what's in your basement, you've got to surprise it. And what he means is if you want to know what's crawling down there in these cold, dirty uh, basements, you've got to turn on the lights. Crises are like that. They turn on the lights of our soul. They reveal what's going on. Because we're not thinking, we're reacting. I have seen this, uh, let me say, multiple times in emergency rooms when a family member dies suddenly, a car accident or a heart attack. And all of a sudden, the family is gathering and they're stunned. They're not thinking, they're, they're just uh, reacting. And uh, that moment tends to reveal uh, the stuff that uh, makes up our lives. The, the moments like that tend to reveal the reveal, real you. And almost always, what I've experienced, whether they're a Christian family or a non-Christian family, is they're asking everybody to pray. People say, what can I do to help pray? Will you, you pray for us? And my point is that that reveals that prayer is natural, not unnatural. It's how we were created. It's a part of what it means to be human. But skeptics say, no, no way. People pray because they're ignorant. Because they're desperate. And I want to say to you, based on the authority of the word of God, no, you pray because you're human. And you're most human when you pray. When your defenses are down, when you're in over your head, when your heart is breaking, when you're facing your limits, when, like the man in the story, you have no bread. You don't just go to your neighbor. You go to God. You go to God. So let me back up. Look, uh, look at these verses a little more closely. In this parable, the neighbor is God. And you can write that above. If you write in your Bibles, you can write that ab uh, 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 above the word friend. The friend here that the man who has the need goes to represents God. God has unlimited resources. Jesus says he could give this guy whatever he wanted. 
And so the man without bread is you and me. And we're dependent, not independent. We have needs. We don't live our lives without needs. And this is the difference that the, uh, between what the Bible says about what it means to be human and what the world says. And so here's my point. When you realize that you are mortal, that you are not self-sufficient, that you are not autonomous, that you are often afflicted, that you are a mixed bag of good and evil without bread. Then you will pray and you are most human when you pray. Or to say it a little differently, prayer humanizes you. You are most real, you are most authentic, you are most human when you pray. And as a believer in Christ, now I'm back to LSA, uh, you know that when you are cast in the basement of affliction, that that is the place, now hear me, that is the place where your king keeps his best wine. And boy, did I, my family drink of that wine as we prayed, as my wife was dying of cancer. And then in the aftermath. You know what prayer is? Prayer is expressed helplessness. And when you don't pray, you're saying, God, I got this. I can handle this. You are most human. You are most like who God created you to be when you pray. Now that's the first reason here. It's the point of these early verses in this parable. The second reason Jesus tells us to pray is because he answers prayer. He answers bold, audacious prayers. So let's pick it up in the second half of verse 8. And read through verse 10, where Jesus says, Yet, because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks find. Notice the promises. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, Jesus is teaching something, uh, and this is sort of a, an aside, a parenthesis. Jesus is teaching us something that there should never be a moment in our lives where we uh, tolerate the ghastly notion that God doesn't answer prayer. Jesus is promising he will answer prayer every which way he can here, and he does it repeatedly. In the Gospel of Luke. But all we have to do is look at the holes in Jesus' hands and the holes in Jesus' feet and see the gap in his side where he was pierced 
to know how much Jesus loves us. And if Jesus loves us that much, if you see the nail holes, if you see the hole in his side, then you will understand he will answer your prayers. Because if he did the bigger, he will certainly do the lesser, right? Now in this parable, the man who's in crisis comes in the middle of the night. But he has a huge problem in an ancient Near Eastern world where hospitality was everything. He has a guest coming and he has no food, no food. And remember, he's a picture of you and me. But the neighbor at first says, there is no way I'm getting up, go away. I mean, we're all uh, comfortable, his house is locked. And then suddenly he changes his mind. Why? Well, Jesus tells us in the second half of verse 8. Let's look at it again. Because of his shameless audacity. Now that's one word in the Greek. And the New Testament was written in Greek originally. And the word means boldness. Now get this. Boldness to the point of rudeness. Boldness to the point of rudeness. It's a mix of aggressiveness and persistence and confidence. And no other religion teaches this. And common sense wouldn't expect this. Jesus says prayer is bothering God. Look at how the word bother is used in verse 7. And uh, this word bother and this concept of aggressive, persistent, confident prayer is so central to Jesus' theology, what he wants us to understand about prayer, that he uses both the word and the uh, concept, again, seven chapters later in Luke, when he tells the parable of the persistent widow. Uh, This widow just keeps going to the judge, and she's bothering and bothering the judge. And Jesus says that, the, that her prayer, her request will be answered. And to quote Jesus, he says, Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? And here we have the key, who cry out to him day and night. Now when Jesus says day and night, he's not talking about you never work. He's not talking about you never sleep. He's talking about prayer is just part of the fabric, the tapestry of your life. And you're a person that is regularly going to God in prayer. So here in chapter 11 and verses 9 and 10, when Jesus commands prayer and promises prayer, ask and it shall be given, seek and you shall find, knock and it shall uh, be opened, it must be interpreted, uh, that those verses must be interpreted in light of verse 8's shameless audacity. Jesus is not commanding something casual. Something convenient. Something half-hearted. Jesus is not talking about prayer that is one and done. I mean, uh, let's say you go to your neighbor and your neighbor's doorbell isn't working and you know that because you're there a lot and you know your neighbor's home. Well, you don't just knock once and quietly and then after a few seconds leave. No, you know your neighbor is home. So you knock loudly and you knock persistently until your neighbor hears and comes to the door. 
So the New Testament talks about praying without ceasing. Hebrews talks about uh, coming with confidence to the throne of grace that we might receive grace and, and mercy in our, our time of need. Uh, the Psalms talk about pouring out your heart to God. It's this shameless audacity. It's Jacob who was, when he was wrestling with God, said, I will not let you go until you bless me. It's shameless audacity. It's boldness. It's consistency. So it's you as an individual, as a man, a woman, a student, prioritizing prayer in your life. It's you and your life group praying lights out. It's our church calling down thunder. Rain down righteousness, God. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let the human heart open wide. Let salvation spring up and righteousness grow with it. I have been praying that prayer from Isaiah 45 for decades for you, the people of Wheaton Bible Church. And about six, seven years ago, I added Ephesians 3 as I pray for our church and our, our, our campuses. Where Paul says, Father, out of your glorious riches, would you strengthen us with power through your spirit, the Holy Spirit, in our inner being so that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith. Not COVID. Not your problems. Not your money. Not your kids. Not your job. But that Christ, the wonder and the beauty and glory of the person and work of Christ would dwell in your heart by faith. And Paul continues and says, and may we be rooted and grounded in your love and have the power together with all God's holy people. We're in this together. To, to grasp, to understand how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. That we may be full, filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. As we live Jesus-centered lives. So Jesus is tangibly, functionally dwelling in our heart by faith. Do you see Jesus' point here in verses 8, 9, and 10? God answers prayer on the one hand because he's merciful, but he will answer your prayers on the other hand because of your boldness, because of your persistence, because of your confidence that he has the bread. And his resources are unlimited. But Jesus takes us a step further, so let's pick it up in verse 11. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish... We'll give him a snake. Or if he asks for an egg, uh, we'll give him a scorpion. I, I can really relate to this. I have got seven kids, and sometimes they can be really demanding. If you then, though you are evil, know how much to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I mean, these two stories are just beautiful. Do you see the change from story one to story two? God isn't merely your neighbor. God is your father. He's your father who is in heaven. And here Jesus is talking about the Christian doctrine of adoption. And doctrine is important. 
So adoption is the moment you believe in Christ, you are forgiven. Uh, Jesus takes your sin, he gives you his righteousness, and you are adopted into God's family. And you become a son and daughter of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you are given in Jesus Christ, because of Jesus Christ, I should say, all the spiritual blessings and the resources and the rights and the privileges of Jesus. You are a member of God's forever family. So we pray with shameless audacity because God isn't merely our neighbor. God is our father and we are his young children. Too little to often know what is best. Too little to really understand what we really want. So you trust your father and you bother your father just like a ch little child bothers mom or dad. I mean, we have a beautiful illustration of this in Genesis 18. Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, has just been told by God himself that God is going to bring judgment and destroy the two cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin. And so what does Abraham do? Abraham comes to God and he says, God, I am nothing but dust and ashes. Uh, what a statement of humility. Your humility is key to your prayer life. You show me humble people and I'll show you people that pray. You show me proud people, self-centered people, I'll show you people that don't pray. And I'm talking the church. And God, I, I'm dust and ashes. And God, if there are 50 people in these two cities, uh, uh, will you spare the cities? And so God relents and says, yes, Abraham. And so Abraham begins to get bold. He begins to get audacious. And he said, well, God, what about 45? And God says, okay. And then Abraham presses and he says, what about 40? What about 30? What about 20? And he gets God all the way down to 10. And he says, God, if there are just 10 righteous people, will you spare the city? And uh, God says, yes. And what I want you to understand understand is Abraham isn't knocking, he's pounding. Do you? There's a difference between aggressive prayer and anemic prayer. There's a difference between uh, casual prayer and consistent prayer. There's a difference between praying with confidence and being careless. Think of a powerful world leader. He also happens to be a great dad, and he's in this strategic critical meeting with other world leaders, and they're talking about war. And suddenly his five-year-old son bursts into the room, and little Herkimer bolts, bolts for his dad and jumps into his father's lap, and suddenly the world stops. Not even a spouse would do that. Jesus is saying in these verses, be that child. Be that small group. Be that church. And boldly jump into your father's lap and pray. He's your father who is in heaven. In the late 1970s, at the height of the Cold War, uh, Russian and Eastern European communist leaders boasted that the church of Jesus Christ had been reduced to old men praying. And think what happened just a few years later. 
when the statues of Stalin and Lenin were toppled all over Europe as the Iron Curtain was toppled. And I want to say to you this morning, beware of old ladies praying. Beware of families praying. Beware of small groups praying. Beware of churches that give themselves to pray. Because they are revolutionaries. And they make communists look like kindergartners. Ask and it shall be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened. So the first reason we pray is because we're most human when we pray. The second reason, reason we pray is Jesus. With all the truth and authority in the universe promises that he will answer your prayers. And that brings me to my third and final reason. And this is something really cool. And I'm going to have to get a little more theological for a moment. So just bear with me. That we pray because Jesus solves our problems. Or better, he solves how you and I approach our problems. And we see this in the second half of verse 13. Look at this. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to ask him? Now, that should raise a question in your mind because Paul later and several times in the New Testament uh, will tell us the moment you and I come to Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells us and that is permanent and that is a, 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 eternal. So what is Jesus talking about here? He's going to give us the Spirit, but we already have the Spirit. Well, I find a lot of help in a couple different passages, and let me mention one because it just has four words I want to focus on. It's John 16, 14. I'm not going to show it to you because it just has four words, but it, it, it is a passage that describes the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Now, that is important because we all are a little confused about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is a, Jesus addresses this in four words. He's uh, talking in John 16 about the Spirit will come. And what does Jesus say about the Holy Spirit? He says, he will glorify me. Four words. He will glorify me. So in Luke chapter 11 and verse 13, uh, Jesus is simply saying, that there is an intimate, there is a growing awareness and uh, experience uh, of the beauty of the power and the love of Jesus that God offers you mediated by the Holy Spirit. And what I want you to hear me say, what Jesus is talking about is God gives you the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit will point you to Jesus. He will glorify me. One of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit in your life is to point you to Jesus, to the gospel. So Paul says, look at this verse in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the uh, Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his glory, and what, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Increasingly so. I want you to see three things. The Lord's glory 
in this verse refers to Jesus' glory. In the context, it's talking about Jesus. His glory, the perfect life. I mean, I mean, think about it. There was never a moment when Jesus didn't love his neighbor. There was never a moment when Jesus didn't love God with all his heart, his soul, and his mind. And we think of the mercy of Jesus, and we, and, and we contemplate that, and the, the suffering of Jesus, and the glory of Jesus, and uh, the, the gospel stories. So the Lord's glory refers to Jesus. And notice the second thing that Paul tells us. He says, contemplation, now get this, contemplation is the key to transformation. But it's you contemplating on Jesus' glory. And third thing he says is it's a spirit who brings this about. So Jesus is teaching us in our passage that the gift of the Holy Spirit that comes to um, uh, believers who are passionately praying is Christ dwelling in your heart by faith. I'm back to Ephesians 3. Where you see Jesus as beautiful, not just useful. It's you knowing that God the Father doesn't just walk alongside you, but God, who is your father, and you who are his child, scoops you up in his arms. And we see this all the time when we're taking walks or in war parks or, or we're in the city. You see a young father pick up his young child in his arms and laugh with him and carry him and, and tickle him and, and delight in him. You see, your father, Jesus is saying, doesn't just love you, he delights in you. What love. So you walk through Costco, okay? And you see all these samples. Well, let me suggest for a moment those samples are a metaphor for the world. So you've got a job sample. You've got a family sample. You've got an appearance sample. You've got a money sample. You've got a sex and on and on. All these different samples represent different aspects of our life in this world. And... Um, and often, they're good. But do you know what those samples aren't? They're not the meal. Jesus is the meal. The Holy Spirit points you to Jesus. So when Jesus promises here the Holy Spirit, he's not promising to give you a perfect life, perfect kids, a bunch of money, uh, 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 new cars all the time. He's promising to give you, and this is the point of the end of verse 13, he's promising to give you more of himself. Now we've had to work to get there, but I find this life-changing. Contemplation on Jesus is the key to transformation. Now, let me illustrate this. Let me uh, take this a little farther. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul says, uh, Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan. We hate those thorns, but God gives them, allows them to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, three times to take it away from me. But he said to me, no. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses 
so that Christ's power may rest on me. Now, Paul doesn't mention the Holy Spirit here, but it's just under the surface. And what we have in this passage is both a, a wonderful illustration of unanswered prayer and an amazing illustration of a response to unanswered prayer. As godly as Paul was, he had a thorn, uh, maybe a serious affliction, uh, uh, serious enough that he went to God regularly. He says, I went three times, and each time God said no. God said, Paul, you're going to live in pain, but your ministry isn't going to suffer because in your pain, I'm going to teach you, and here we come to a key, I'm going to teach you to depend upon me. This is how you approach your problems. This is how we work through the difficulties in life. You say, yes, sir, to God. I know, God, you're doing this in my life to grow me, and I've had lots and lots of problems in my life. You know if God doesn't give you the mercy you ask for in silver, he'll give it to you in gold. And Paul here accepts that. He's cool with that. Because Paul wanted what Jesus promised in Luke 11 and verse 13. A deeper experience of the unfailing love of Jesus mediated, revealed by the Holy Spirit. Friends, God doesn't give you what you want but what you would want if you knew everything he knows. If you knew everything he knows. You know, just as a father and mother would never ever give their kids a snake or a scorpion if they asked for food, how much more so God? No one loves you like God. God has given you a son so that you might have an abundant life here and forever. Uh, and might experience the peace and the fruits of the Spirit that the Holy Spirit lavishes on you. So you have a choice. And I'm kind of back to the beginning. You believe the words of Jesus as truth. You go against the grain of culture. You accept your suffering when it comes. And with everything in you, you pursue Jesus. And a key to that is shameless, audacious prayer, persistent, aggressive prayer with confidence. Or, and there's really only two choices, you spend your life consuming the samples. The petty things that will never satisfy you. Uh, friends, here Jesus is offering you the solution to your tendency to waste your life. The solution to your tendency to self-destruct. And now we come to the gospel and I'm done. Because it's uh, living a gospel-centered life that makes us, makes us happen. And what do I mean? Well, I mean, you know that Jesus will, God will answer your prayers because Jesus promises to. 
And he will do it in his time and in his way and according to his purposes. Because on one terrible day, God did not answer Jesus. It was the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Father, take this cup from me. And God refused because on the cross, God gave Jesus what we deserve so that the moment we believe, God gives us what Jesus deserves. Jesus' prayers were rejected so ours could be accepted. If you will, God gave Jesus the snake, the scorpion, that we might feast at the Father's table forever. And to the extent we see that Jesus is beautiful, not merely useful, we will pray. And to the extent we pray, we will be an invincible church. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these amazing, these profound, these strong words of Jesus. These are not weak, anemic words. These are strong, powerful, compelling words that call for change in our lives. And we ask God that you would give us, I, I just pray for my brothers and sisters, that you would give them ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart willing to submit and to respond. And to that end, we pray that the Spirit might reveal to us more and more of Jesus. Amen.